Good evening, human beings. Um, if you will join me in just yeah, 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 just do it. yeah. Um, I always start my sermons like that. If at any point I'm dragging on too long, feel free just to tell me to bring it home and I'll quickly close my points and everything. Um, thank you so much for allowing me to speak today. Uh, it's a bit of a bittersweet uh, day. Sweet in the sense that uh, I'm getting to do the thing that I love most in churches is preaching. Uh, and bitter in the sense that this is my last sermon in uh, uh, Australia for a, a little bit of time. Um, so I thought, you know what, let me just leave today with a message that is a more of a challenge, a call to action for us here at the Melbourne Exchange. And the call to action is actually the name of the sermon, which is to fill the space. And if you just take a quick glance around the room, there are a couple spaces to fill. So before I get into it, um, allow me to uh, ask you just to join in a quick word of prayer to bless the sermon. Ask for prayer to come. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for this beautiful day. We thank you for the people who are here. Please bless the words that come from my mouth and uh, give us the ability to understand and accept the word that you have uh, prepared for us. In your love and name we pray. Amen. Now, when you're starting a great movement or you're giving someone a call to action, the greatest way to start is by asking a very powerful, very thought-provoking, very, very strong question. And my question for you is, what is the greatest movie ever made? Now, um, because we're a very small, intimate group, I will actually ask that question seriously. What is the greatest movie ever made, in your opinion? What is the greatest movie ever made? Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves. Wrong, sir. What is the greatest movie ever made? Marty Python and the Holy Grail. And even Karina says no. Sorry, wrong. I'll take one more. Greatest movie ever made. Thank you for smoking. It's not the greatest movie ever made. The greatest movie ever made, ladies and gentlemen, is, of course, The Titanic. It's an amazing film. The, the passion, the love, the romance, the raw energy. It is a film that captures souls for, for years to come. And when it came out to date, this is the only movie that's ever made me cry. And um, The Titanic 2 is actually coming out soon, the resinking. Um, and everybody is really eagerly anticipating it. But I don't really want to talk about the movie per se. I actually want to bring attention to a particular point in the movie that drives an analogy which we can use to understand things that happen even in the church today. If you look at this scene, I don't know where that guy came from, but when the boat is now halfway in the water, and I just want everyone to picture it. We've all watched the film, right? It's sorry to ruin it for anyone who hasn't watched it, but the boat sinks at the end. Um, and as the, the boat is now halfway in the water, there's that guy who falls from the roof and he pings and he spins and all sorts of, sorts of stuff and people are being loaded in the lifeboats and it's all frantic and it's scary and it's all exciting. And then they bring particular attention to one lifeboat, which is the lifeboat where that lady is at the top there. And it's the lifeboat that's pictured in the bottom right corner over there. And when you're looking at that lifeboat, there's something powerful that happens in there. That lady at the top was that American lady. She was very outspoken, very energetic. She always spoke her mind. And as they're there in this lifeboat, and they're drifting away to safety, all around them they can hear screaming. All around them they can hear cries for help. It's dark, it's scary, it's not a fun thing. But in that lifeboat, in that little, little place of theirs, they're all safe. 
And in there, she sees that although there's many people out there who are not having the best of time, in that boat there's still space. And even though she knew that we cannot save everyone who's sinking, but so long as there's still space in that boat, we need to turn back. So she grabs her an, an oar, stands up and looks at the only guy who was in there and says, Hey, help me row back, let's go get people. And because they were asking for women and children to board the lifeboat, this guy knows that he's not meant to be there. He has this face of feeling unworthy. He has this face of looking uncomfortable. He knows he took someone's place there. He doesn't feel like he deserves to be in there. Who is he now to start going back and loading people in a boat he's not meant to be in? He's barely qualifying to be in there. And so he just looks away and he's really quiet and he, he doesn't want to engage with what she's saying. He's just hoping maybe someone out there is brave enough. So she quickly ends that mission and she looks at the sailor, the guy who's professionally trained for these situations, the guy who was put in that boat because he was the best person for them to look to if anything was to happen once they were in the boat. And she looks at him and she says, hey man, you are the one who's trained for this. Let's go back. You remember what he said to her? You've got to shut your face, otherwise we're going to throw you in the water. It was very closed off, very harsh. And when the guys in the room were not doing what they were supposed to do in typical uh, girl power fashion, she's like, you know what, forget you dudes. Let's make this a girl thing. And she says, come on ladies, let's roll back. But unfortunately for her, the ladies in there had always eaten from a silver spoon. They kind of liked the space that was in the boat. It meant leg room. If they had to actually go and get people, it actually meant doing something. If they actually had to try, it would mean that they'd have to get out of their comfort zone, and that's something that was not very, very familiar to them. And so ultimately, they said no. And so this woman, who was so energetic, so pumped up, so ready, realized she was in a boat with people who didn't share the same passion, who didn't want to help people, who didn't want to do anything. And she felt so suffocated. And that's the picture when she realizes... There's no one who wants to do anything where she is. And she sits back and she's dejected. How often do we see that when we're in a church community? How often do we see people with a face and a look of confusion that I'm feeling unworthy when you bring to them a challenge? They look at you like, no, this is not for me. How often do we meet grumpy cats? The guardians of the church, the people who've been here long enough. I've seen many people come here. I've done many, many, many outreach programs. Whatever ideas you want to bring, I'm not hearing them. How many people are just, you know, I enjoy this space. I mean, look, we barely have enough tables for our question and answer session. If we have more people, that means more tables. That means we actually have to get two boxes of cookies. What's the problem? We're having a good time. And then we have those people, of course, who are energetic and they don't get the support. So the question is, when we are building a church community and we have all these internal voices, and when you double them up and you multiply them by the many people who share those voices, and there could be more, you then have a congregation that has, as a combined group, this internal barriers, these internal challenges that could choke and suffocate their God-given talents their God-given purpose of going out and sharing the gospel. So the question is, how do we overcome being afraid, feeling rejected, being closed off, and being idle?
Hashtag BLJ. Be like Jesus. But when people say be like Jesus, it's a very broad subject. I mean, there's not a sermon in the world that you cannot connect Jesus to. So when you just say to someone, be like Jesus. Oh, okay. <laughs> That's nice. WWJD. You know, it, it's a very confusing thing. So in the context of what we're trying to achieve together to this afternoon as a group, we're not just going to look at any aspect of Jesus, but we want to particularly look at the fact that in everything that Jesus did, he was intentional. He was intentional in all that he did. Whether people understood it at the time as you were saying, let's do it, or whether they eventually got it seven years or late, much, much, much later, Whatever he did was intentional. And if you doubt that, the very fact that we're here today, and I'm speaking to you, and you guys are listening, and then later on we're going to have a discussion, is because he was intentional in all that he did. So let's um, grab our Bibles. And because we're a nice little intimate group, there are a couple of verses over here. And all these verses are going to have just a brief illustration to further delve into this concept of Jesus being intentional in all that he did. Like really just, let's take a chunk out of it. So, can I get two, four, six, seven? Can I get seven volunteers to pick a verse ahead? Seven volunteers? I know there's seven of us in here, so that could potentially mean all of us. Who would like to take the first one? No worries. Who would like to do the second one? No worries. Who would like to take the third one? Thank you very much. Anyone for fourth? For the fourth one. Thank you very much. Anyone for the fifth one? Yeah. Anyone for the sixth? Lovely. Lucky number seven. Oh, no, it's not all of them. I've stopped it there. There's a specific reason. Um, and uh, anyone for the seventh one? Thanks, Ted. No worries. So, um, Steve, if you can just start us off with the first one. Matthew chapter 4. Verse 18 to 20. As Jesus walked along the shore of Lake Galilee, he saw his two brothers who were fishermen, Simon, called Peter, and his brother Andrew, catching fish on the lake with a net. Jesus said to them, Come with me, and I will teach you to catch people. Once they left their nets and went with him. So, as we see, briefly, we're not, we're not like really taking a chunk out of all the verses, but briefly we have Christ here, who is all-powerful, all-knowing. I mean, he is God. But he realizes that there's work to be done long after he leaves. And so instead of going on this one-man mission, he realizes and he does intentionally bring people along. And we see here the gathering of the twelve. It's an intentional practice. When you're about to do something, you need to bring in people so that you can spread the work out and as well to have a succession plan for when you leave. Intentional. The second one. After this, Jesus and his disciples went into the Judean countryside, and he remained there with them and was baptizing. John also was baptizing at Anon near Salim, because water was plentiful there, and people were coming and being baptized. Right. So here we have the intro to the section where Christ is going to get baptized. And you can, if you can recall, that John the Baptist had one... One, 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 slight, one slight question to ask, which was, hang on, isn't this supposed to be the other way around? Why, why am I baptizing you? Surely you're supposed to be baptizing me. But Christ told him, no, it's important that he gets baptized. Because it was important for him to intentionally show 
that baptism is an important part of the Christian walk. The next one. John 4, yeah. verse 1 and 2. When therefore the Lord knew how the Pharisees had heard that Jesus made and baptized more disciples than John, though Jesus himself baptized not but his disciples. Right. So Jesus never actually baptized anyone. He used to sit back and he would send the twelve to go and do the work. It was intentional. Because when he's about to leave, and he gives us a great commission, Go ye therefore and make disciples of all men, baptizing them. They understand what that means. Because they have been taught how to do it. It was intentional that he didn't baptize, and that he let the disciples do it. Because he was trying to illustrate what they must do long after he's gone. Next one. Technology uh, Technology Yes. Oh, sorry. No, sorry. Luke 9, 26. Luke, verse 9. Okay. Luke chapter 9, verse 26. And he sent them out to proclaim... I think you're out of order on that. It's okay. Uh-huh. And he sent them out to proclaim the kingdom of God and to perform healing. And he said to them, Take nothing for your journey, neither a staff, nor a bag, nor bread, nor money. And do not even take two tunics apiece. Whatever house you enter, stay there until you leave that city. And for those who do not receive you as you go out from that city, shake the dust off your feet as a testimony against them. Departing, they began going throughout the villages, preaching the gospel and healing everywhere. Right. So as he is preparing them, as he has been walking with them all this time, when it's now time to go into the work, he still does something intentional. He sends them on this mission, but he tells them to take nothing. Because as we all know, right, as Christians, um, Martin Luther said that we need to hear the gospel daily because we forget it daily. And when you are trying to embark on a journey which requires faith, if you are not living by faith, how are you going to be able to appreciate that you need it? And how are you going to be able to identify it when things of faith are happening around you? And so Christ sends these guys onto a mission and he says, pack nothing. Because he knows that they will learn that the Spirit will provide for them regardless of where they go. It is intentional that he's doing these things. I hope we're still on thing. Yes. Uh, after these things, the Lord appointed 70 others also and sent them two by two before his face into every city and place where he himself was about to go. Then he said to them, The harvest truly is great, but the laborers are few. Therefore, pray to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into his harvest. Right. So he's now got, he's now got a pattern. He's now got a, a, a way of teaching. He's now got the things that are in place. And so he picks 70 more and he sends them ahead of him because he knows that they now know how to do things. Very intentional in the things that he does. He sends people, get things ready, get things ready. And when I come in, I'll just clean it up, clean it up, clean it up, clean it up. Very intentional in all that he did. John 11:34. Jesus once more deeply moved came to the tomb. It was a cave with a stone laid across the entrance. Take away the stone, he said. But Lord, said Martha, the sister of the dead man, by this time there is a bad odor, 
for he has been there for four days. Then Jesus said, Did I not tell you that if you believe, you will see the glory of God? So they took away the stone. Then Jesus looked up and said, Father, I thank you that you have heard me. I knew that you always hear me, but I said this for the benefit of the people standing here, that they may believe that you sent me. When he had said this, Jesus called in a loud voice, Lazarus, come out. The dead man came out, his hands and feet wrapped with strips of linen and a cloth around his face. Jesus said to them, take off the grave clothes and let him go. Right. Um, I was listening, why I included this verse is I was listening to that song called Four Days Late. Has anyone ever heard it? It's a gospel song written by a, a lady in the States who was writing from the perspective of Mary and she's singing, each verse of the song is one day, so she's singing from the time when it's like, okay, you're a day late, and then it's okay, you're two days, you're three days, it's like, okay, dude, you're here, but you're four days late. And, but eventually, God, I mean, Jesus, you know, raises Lazarus from the dead and it's a great miracle. But if you think about it, having faith in his absence is something that was very important for them to grasp. Imagine the fact that she had actually seen Jesus. She had actually lived with him and she couldn't wait four days. I've been born uh, for, for a few years now and uh, never seen him. Never seen him. How else am I supposed to have faith if I don't know how to believe in him when he's not there? You know, last week we had a sermon which had a, a very powerful verse which was read that when the Lord of the earth returns, will he find faith on the earth? It's one of those things where you need to be able to have faith in absence. And it was intentional that he must teach those things. And I'm just picking a few things here. There's more places where he's done similar things where he's taught patience in order for people to understand that even when he's not there, even when he doesn't seem like he's listening, there is a purpose, there is intention. And the, the last one? Yep. They don't belong to this world and neither do I. Your word is the truth, so let this truth make them completely yours. I'm sending them into the world just as you sent me. And so a bit of a, a conclusive statement that you know what I'm now sending them off with all the things that we have gone through all the things that I have taught all the things that we have done I am now sending them off they can do the work so when we we don't actually have to read um, the stuff in Acts because the verses that I had in Acts was when Christ had now left and uh, we have the, the days of the, in the, the day of Pentecost and I also included uh, as, as the section when they chose Stephen and they created disciples. And you just see them starting to re, redo or reenact exactly what had happened to them. They were picked, they were baptizing, they were sending people ahead of them. And you see that this is what Christ wanted. And as a result, the gospel grew very much. In fact, so much so, again, I reiterate, that's why we are here today. But we have a case study. Action Jackson. Oh, that's, that's the most suitable ringtone for that. <laughs> Amazing. So if we just read, I'll read Mark 6, 35 to 42. Mark chapter 6, verse 35 to 42. 
When the day was far was now far spent, his disciples came to him and said, This is a deserted place, and already the hour is late. Send them away, that they may go into the surrounding country and villages and buy themselves bread, for they have nothing to eat. But he answered and said to them, You give them, you give them something to eat. And they said to him, Shall we go and buy two hundred denarii worth of bread and give them something to eat? But he said to them, How many loaves do you have? Go and see. And when they found out what they and and when they found out, they said five and two fish. Then he commanded them to make them all sit down in groups in the green grass. So they sat down in ranks in hundreds and in fifties. And when he had taken the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven, blessed and broke the loaves and gave them to his disciples to set before them. And the two fish he divided among them all. So they all ate and were filled. This is an excerpt from um, Ellen White's book, um, Acts of the Apostles, and she is describing how Christ is, is intentional in how he carried out this miracle. And he, she said, The miracles are performed by Christ, but the follow-up work is given to his disciples to carry out. The story of the 5,000 illustrates this really well. In this parable is a deep spiritual lesson for all Christian followers. God commanded to his Son, who commanded his followers, who commanded the multitude and then the people to one another. Christ is teaching them. And then it goes on to say, The things Jesus can do, he will do. But the things he bades us to do, he gives us power and authority to execute. Whatever human power is capable of doing, divine power is not summoned to do. And we saw it with the illustration of the, of the baptisms, where he sat back and he let them go and do the work. Christ was intentional in all that he did. So, what is the benefit of intention? Tying it in with what we started saying. Intention, and when you live and do things with intention, meaning, purpose, it allows you to think that fear is temporary and has a deadline. Because when you intentionally start to carry out things, the things that you think you can't do, slowly start to become things that you can do. It opens you up to new ideas. It teaches you to be proactive, not reactive. And it teaches patience and perseverance. Intention when spreading the gospel is important. So, why is intention important? Coming to a close now, bringing the ship down. What, why is intention important? Why is it important to be intentional? I love this photo. Because when you don't do things intentionally, when we don't carry out things in church intentionally, we substitute good Christian practice that builds a church for hygiene. Hygiene. So if you don't uh, preach the gospel, does that mean you brush your teeth more? No. Hygiene is just a word that is used to describe things that we do because we're supposed to do it. When you think about it, when you were a kid, you were told to brush your teeth, brush your teeth, brush your teeth, shower, shower, shower. Cut your hair, cut your hair, cut your nails, cut your nails. Keep your hygiene, keep your hygiene. And how many of us, when we're actually standing in front of the shower, are actually thinking, brush, 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 stroke, 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 circle, 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 goggle, 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 rinse, 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 spit, spit, spit. It's a bit of a motivational song for brushing your teeth. We don't do that. We just do it because it's just something we're supposed to do. We don't really think about it too much. We don't really care about it too much. It's just one of those things we're supposed to do. You don't question it that much. You're just supposed to do it. And when you're now substituting intention with hygiene, 
Have you ever been in a church community where you get the distinct feeling that everything we do in this place is just in the maintenance of a service? We're really just maintaining a service. Yes, I heard a sermon. Yes, I sang some songs. Yes, I said hello and goodbye to some people. And that's it. There's nothing intentional. There's no meaning. There's no purpose. There's no value in it. It's kind of like when you're not looking at... I love this question. When you're thinking about it in terms of a church, a church environment, it's that, it's that idea of task and achievement. You know, task is the thing that you do, and achievement is the thing that you get out of it. It's kind of like dieting. You know, you can say Kuda has been dieting for six weeks, but his uh, his six pack is still in its esky. You know, it's like it's, it's, it's there's a task of dieting, but he's not really achieving much. You know, teaching is also something you can say that you know. You can go and say, can I see Mrs. Smith? And she's like, oh, she's in room 35. You go to room 35, you see her teaching, you see her doing the thing, but nothing is coming out of it. And the same thing can happen in a church. You can be involved in the task of church, but what are you achieving? What are you getting out of it? What are the people who are doing getting out of it? And very quickly, you can be that group that meets on Saturday at 3 o'clock, has a sermon, has some nibbles, has some questions, and we all go home. If we lose sight of the intention and we start to carry our church as a matter of hygiene, and even in our personal lives, when we begin to pray and when we begin to carry out our Christian lives as a matter of hygiene, it really becomes a challenge for us to then see any intention, meaning, or purpose in the things that we do. If you're going through something and someone from work asks you, hey, what's going on with that thing that you were talking to, talking to me about the other day? You tell them the truth, the pure, unadulterated truth. And then you meet someone, um, you know, Brother Mike from church, and uh, Brother Mike says to you, well, how's that thing going with you? And you're like, you know what, I've been praying about it, and, but you haven't been praying about it. You know, I've been really been trying to work with, with God on this one, and, but you haven't been working with God. But why do you say it? Because it's hygiene for Christians to tell each other, we pray about our problems. And even when someone's telling you their story, you say to them, you know what, brother, don't worry, I'm going to pray for you every day. And you might do it that night, but best believe after day two, you're back on your own schedule. But why do we say it to each other? Because it's just one of those things we have to say. It's hygiene to say we pray about our problems. It's hygiene to say that I'll pray for you. It's hygiene to put a sermon up that doesn't do anything. It's hygiene to put up songs. It's hygiene to carry out things on the Sabbath. That's why it is important to have intention, meaning, purpose, value in the things you do. Um, I read this book, I read this uh, in, a, in a Christian blog that I really love to follow, and it says that he who does nothing but pray will soon cease to pray, or his prayers will become a formal routine. When men take themselves out of social life, away from the sphere of Christian duty and cross-bearing, when they cease to work earnestly for the Master, who worked earnestly for them, they lose the subject matter of prayer and have no incentive to devotion. Their prayers become personal and selfish. They cannot pray in regard to the wants of, of humanity or the upbuilding of Christ's kingdom, pleading for strength wherewith to work. If you're not living the life, if you're not doing things with the meaning, if you're not doing things intentionally, it becomes routine. It becomes hygiene. It develops and produces nothing. 
So what are five things? And this is just my idea. This is not law. When we, when we start discussing things, this is the last slide, ladies and gentlemen, for anyone who's checking their watch. So what are five things that we can think about or five things to look at to avoid us not being able to fill the space? We've discussed quite a lot of things, and we started with the Titanic, and we don't want to end up like the Titanic. We had internal voices and barriers, things that stop us as either individuals, as a group, from wanting to build this. And we overcome that by being intentional, by using intention, by putting meaning and value in everything that we do. And because when we don't do that, doesn't necessarily mean we stop doing something, but then we start doing things as a matter of hygiene. It doesn't matter. It doesn't mean anything. So how then do we ensure that we continuously do things that have meaning and can build the community and can fill the space? Number one is to connect everyone to a common purpose. Every church preaches Jesus. Every church believes in God. But what does your church need? What does your church represent? What are you trying to achieve with the people who come here? What do you hope for them? What do you want to see for them? If you have a church that has got a lot of young couples, why are you preaching on retirement? What are you trying to achieve? And whatever that is, that is what we are going to call your common purpose. And when you find people who gravitate towards your community, it's because they, they tap in and they buy in to that common purpose. They want to be a part of what you're trying to achieve. Second thing is to then build trust in that group. Building trust is making sure that everybody feels safe enough to play a part in this place. I always find that a lot of us forget that we don't come to church to be friends, but rather we are friends as a byproduct of being here. But when we quickly get lost in our friendships and then we start separating into cliques, if you have a common purpose, and if you have trust, you can still have those things and still have a church that is productive. But sometimes when we forget that, we need to be able to have people who feel safe, people who feel trusted, people who feel connected to what we're trying to achieve. When we forget those things, it causes us to lose the intention. Show genuine care. Care about what's going on in your church. Care about what's going on with the people here. When you invest in the genuine emotional management, that's a very bad way of saying it, take two. When you invest in caring about the people who are in your church, it shows in the way they respond and it shows in the way that you grow as a person. And that growth really contributes to filling up the space. Open and honest communication. One of the biggest issues that can come to any community that's trying to grow is not being able to tell each other what it is when it is to be able to be open and honest to be able to discuss things that are going on to say hey we've tried this it's not working let's do something else or hey let's try and do this let's try and do that but when the church is real discussions are happening in your house or in your car on the way home there's a problem We've got to have that environment of being open and honest. And the last one is not just about, it's closely related to genuine care, but it's investing in others. If you see people with a talent, feed it. Give them the opportunity. If you see people who have a passion for doing something, feed it. Give them an opportunity. But people must come into this environment 
and be changing. If you're in here in 2013 and now it's 2014 and you feel the same or you haven't been challenged along the way to think differently or be different, something is wrong. We have to invest in people. We have to do things intentionally. So the challenge for us to fill the space, unfortunately, is one that we cannot not accept. We have to do it. But the good thing is that we don't have to do it by ourselves. And the excellent thing is that we can always lean on each other when we need help. The video at the start wasn't um, used to illustrate that it is important to be perfect. It was used to illustrate that all the imperfection together produces something pretty cool, pretty awesome. And that's what we need to fill up the space. So I thank you for listening. I hope, I'm glad no one snapped at me, which means this is good. And um, I hope you enjoy our questions and answers later. Thank you.